I want to emphasize, I know things are very bleak. Actually, friends of mine have left. They're forced to leave evacuations tomorrow. They work at different NGOs. Um, I think we'll have to touch on that subject tonight in a way that makes sense to Matteo and myself, but I don't really want that to be the focus of it. I think it's still okay to talk about everything else. Of course, yeah. So, let me try to bring that huge tragedy into our personal lives in a way that's meaningful. Matteo and I spoke before this episode to try to figure out how to get to know each other better. Matteo has been on Serde. Matteo has been interviewed a variety of outlets. If any of you haven't seen his music, his, his talent, his singing on The Voice France, watch that on YouTube because Matteo, you're a shining star in person and on stage. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and I do it with all my heart, I swear. It, it shows, it shows. And with that kind of passion in the background that you and I share in different ways, we both express ourselves for a living. I discovered a week ago, Matteo and I live on the same street in Marm Chayet. And that street has seen so much damage. Yeah, I know. So much damage. But that street and that neighborhood, and this neighborhood too, many different pockets of the country, bring out the best in us as well. And it's the same place. Yeah, yeah. Our homes can identify us, and we identify with our homes, our furniture, the way we shape our background. And the same home can be destroyed overnight in a second during the blast. And it's the same spot. And I want to start with something that happened roughly a month ago. We're both at the same distance, and I measured it. Your building and mine, same distance from Om, where Jnut al-Rab and customers inside yeah. had a brief standoff. And that moment, I think, shook a lot of us that still identify with that type of expression meaning absolute free expression. And I think of that as fundamental to Lebanon. And I don't think you can compromise with that. I see that eroding. Not just with Shnud al-Rab, obviously, but I see it eroding from the region, and it's beginning to erode here too. And I think it's hard to do this when you have a climate of fear all the time. And tonight, maybe more than half the audience didn't show up. Not because of a war that's happening here, a war next door, but it threatens us. And you were saying it. You stayed up watching the news at night, and you're usually a good sleeper. Yeah, I am a very good sleeper, really. Like, I can sleep uh, straight nine hours, and it's been two, three nights that I'm waking up at night at any sound that I can hear during my sleep. And I was like really panicking because... It's not the time for the war. It's not the time to refill these kind of feelings. It's terrible. So let's go down that road as much as we can. Trying to be an artist. I'm going to use that term loosely. Trying to also be an activist in your art and still surviving this storm today. What is it like to be in your shoes? You're an opera singer. You're a performer, an actor. You have multiple talents under your belt. And you're even a painter. Yeah. What is it like to be an artist today here? Uh, actually, uh, I was born here. I was born here from Greek origins. I'm going to present myself briefly. Uh, I, have Greek, I have Greek descendants, and um, 
I was born and raised in Beirut till I was 18 years old. So, and then I left to Paris. But everything started here, actually. Beirut gave me a lot, gave me too much. Uh, it was a source of inspiration architecture-wise, uh, uh, painting-wise, everything was uh, music-wise. Everything was so rich back then, and it's still, I'm sure. But uh, I had to pursue my dreams when I went to Paris. So I went to study uh, fine arts in Académie de la Grande Chaumière and uh, uh, opera studies at École Normale de Musique in Paris. And... Uh, Matteo was born here, but I was like uh, molded mm. in Paris. And then, since I have a Greek passport, I can live anywhere in the world. But I chose to come back to Lebanon uh, eight years ago to establish myself here because I'm sure that I have a big message to send and I have a word to say and I have stuff to show. And I am sure that I can make a big difference in Lebanon. And I'm sure I think I made a little bit of a difference here. Oh, you made a big difference. Yeah. So. But I, I want to talk about, a, and I, it's something you said in an interview, I can't remember where, it's something I often say, that the beauty of this country largely comes from its pain today. Of course. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of light in that darkness. Do you think of your art in the same way, that you're shining beauty on an otherwise tragic stage? I don't know if it's if if it's if it's general actually or a rule, but beauty comes from pain. Art comes from pain. The most beautiful art comes from pain. And uh, I cannot be staying in my house and my villa and having everything easy. And I'm gonna put something on a on a canvas or I'm gonna sing something. It's gonna be maybe pretty, but it's nev never gonna be transcendental. You know what I mean? This is the word. You have to have this pain. You have to have this urge to sh to, to 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 transfer a message from deep down inside. And uh, I think Beirut gives you this kind of uncertainty and in this kind of tragedy. We live in a in a Greek play here in Lebanon. Every, <laughs> every chapter is something uh, cool. At the same time, something very tragic. So look at the buildings in Shemaizeh and Marim Khayil. They were gorgeous because they were crawling, and then we had the blast. They were completely destroyed. Look at them now. They're more gorgeous than before. There's a renaissance everywhere in Beirut all the time, all the time. So this is why I love living here. And this is why my art is uh, upliving every tragedy because I'm not, I'm not going to compare it to a phoenix, but uh, it grows from the pain, from the uncertainty, from all the problems that we have. So we're going to get into your career. We'll yeah. focus in on it. But I want to go a bit deeper on the exact location. I think it's today. You shared a photo online of your building that's under repair. So that's three and a half years or so after the blast. My building took time for it to come back to life. It still need a, it needs a lot of repair. But we're living in that pain. Did you find that your talents are better expressed here than in Greece or in France? Meaning you can sing on stage and maybe up to a million people will watch you on that clip or even more but that it doesn't feel the right. It almost feels like it's lacking something that you can only find here. Because I'm wondering why a serious artist like yourself with a Greek passport, who was on The Voice in France not that long ago, is still determined to stick around. And I think this is an unshakable thing for you. Absolutely. So what is it exactly that keeps you here? 
uh, I don't know. I uh, I have always a message to, to to transfer every time I go on stage or every time I show something here in Lebanon. Every time I'm somewhere, there's a message behind it, and uh, I feel it's necessary. I cannot disappear for a long time. So every time I disappear for a vacation or for 10 days, I have the urge to come back to fulfill some void or a gap or create something because I cannot disappear from Lebanon. Every time someone tells me, oh, the situation, you, are the art, you, you the artists, are struggling in Lebanon. Uh, it's not a place for people like you. You're better than Lebanon. Uh, you're an international. Yes, I am international. I sing all over the world. I'm, I sing for monarchies. I sing for prince, princesses uh, of European monarchy. I sing in biggest stages of operas in the world, etc. But uh, here is very different. The crowd is different. The message is different. And it's home. It's a feeling. I don't know. It's a feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's, it is a feeling. You feel like you fulfilled something every time you... You know, we have a parallel story. Uh, I was also stuck abroad during COVID. And oh my I, God, poor you. <laughs> COVID here was amazing. <laughs> and I was actually stuck in New York. And New okay. York completely shut down. I know. So that kind of energy in the background disappears. It's startling. But it never really bothered me enough. The little things here bother me more. And I think they inspire me too. And I think the reason I say parallel is because we both use our voice for different things. So let me use that to go back to your own voice. You're known best, I think, for your, for your music, for your singing, but your voice is shared in different ways. Take me back to the beginning of that story where you discovered that your voice was meaningful and what it was like to use it for the first time. Sure, I'm going to present my voice briefly. I'm a countertenor. Uh, it's a very rare male voice uh, where I think less than a hundred in the world and I'm the only one in the Middle East uh, and uh, I'm very proud of being of having introduced this kind of voice and kind of music in the, in the Middle East in 2007 so I was uh, born in Beirut and I, I was born in a family who loves art in so many ways mm. so this family pluriculturel like who comes from Greek ascendance, Turkish ascendance, we're Christian, we're Muslims, we're Shia, Sunni, Orthodox, whatsoever. So usually the help at home, they didn't know what, what, where we belong. So <laughs> it was always a mystery for them. Are you Christian? Are you Muslim? So uh, we, we grew in this beautiful old Lebanese house, heritage house, and I was surrounded by beauty. And I was a very curious guy, very curious kid. So I wanted to imitate voices. I wanted to, to paint. I wanted to act. I wanted to do a lot of things. And I was very, like we say in, uh, in Lebanon, original, yeah, no, no, <laughs> very different. And, um, Which has a double meaning a Double sometimes. meaning, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I remember... At school, I was like, uh, they did uh, a big avertissement on the bulletin, you know, and they were, uh, élève très original, be careful, he's very original. Be careful. Be careful. You know, Which is was, also good and bad. It could be either one. It's yeah, like, yeah. The be watch careful out. was watch out because yeah. uh, I was uh, with the nuns, you know, and with the nuns, nothing was very positive. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so that, that's going back to your... Early years, childhood. Early years, exactly. You already are told that you're original too. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. I was actually, I was very different as a kid. I was, but I was a cool kid. Apparently, I had a lot of friends. Uh, I was not like the secluded kid uh, mm. because I was different. 
and I had a very uh, strong personality and it, it was showing in my early ages. And then at age nine, I, my parents discovered that I had a very unique voice because I was imitating voices at home. I was imitating, imitating Maria Callas or I was imitating uh, uh, Dalida in her early years or princesses of Disney, uh, Aurora, Cinderella, uh, Snow White, etc. And they discovered that actually my voice was worth something. And uh, we started with music lessons and piano lessons. And then I shifted because I, I wanted to do something at, at the same time. So I was painting at the same time and I was acting and doing ballet. And uh, voila, so uh, I was touching a lot of things. So your parents really recognized that the voice itself was exceptional. Absolutely. And I like that you're imitating things probably on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're just On singing. TV or on CDs or... Right. So at that age, did they know or did, did you know early in life that you would later have that unique voice in, in opera? I had no idea. Okay. I, had no, I was singing, I was imitating a voice that was existing. Male, female, it was not important for me. I see. It was no, there was no gender for my voice. And then growing up, I was 16, 17, you know, the voice changes with puberty. Course, it didn't. Yeah. My, my speaking voice hmm. was changing, but my singing voice was still here. So it was, yeah. it was... Yeah. For me, uh, a revelation. I, I was still singing with the same pitch, and uh, the, I, I had still at 17 years old. I had no idea it was called a countertenor. Right. So that that kind because that's I I did not know that there was such thing actually as a countertenor until I listened to you share that story, which is an extremely rare voice. You said it earlier. Yeah, I was singing it sometimes. With my, in my at my parents' friend's house, etc., and I thought I was the only person in the world having this kind of voice. And then right. later on, I discovered that actually this voice is called countertenor. It exists, and we are the heritage of the castrati's of the 17th, 19th century in Italy. Let's actually touch on that a little bit. Yeah, the castrati. Is it? Is it 1800s? Is that right? When or earlier? 17th even? century, 18th yeah. century. Oh, 17. Okay, right. Yeah. So the. Six, I always forget. Yeah, 1600. Yeah, that I hope I remember this right because I tried to read up on it. That it's literal castration of boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Women were uh, were banned to sing in church, so they have to replace the sopranos because right. you had soprano voices, mezzo yeah. soprano voices. Yeah. We had to replace them, so we used to castrate the the child, the, 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 the boys of the choir before puberty for them to stay, to, to play with their hormones and to have this high pitch. Right, right. For, the, for life. Yeah. So it was a barbaric thing to do, but it was en vogue and they were the biggest rock stars of Italy and then it migrated to Germany and then to France and then to, to all of the courts of Europe. So your so parents came with a you pair know the of movie scissors? Fa- no, no. I have and you big started bowl. singing? I have big bowls. I can show them. But... <laughs> But uh, you developed countertenor out of fear. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, you might know one of the biggest castratis of the of the, of the world, Farinelli. Oh yeah, you I have to the, watch yeah. this movie if you didn't the watch name. the movie. Yeah, yeah, the movie. And I watched and I watched this movie. I was seventeen years old. I see Farinelli il castrato. Right. I was okay. shocked. I was like, oh my god, this voice actually, my voice is a heritage of this voice. That's Without the castration. So in, by heritage, does that mean that it's inheriting the same pitch? Technique. Or technique. Ah, technique. Technique and pitch. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so this requires training. It's not something you can just sing on your own. No. So, I mean, because you're very young still as a teenager. Is that something that your family insisted on? 
that they saw this potential and they wanted you to go. They it. saw the potential actually, and I I automatically switched to music studies. Right. But the thing is, I wasn't taking proper singing lessons. Mm. I was singing all by myself, and automatically, you know, when you sing by yourself at puberty and adolescence, I had an automatic technique, natural technique that was going on. Yeah. So when I had my first music study when I was 19 years old, after I signed a contract with Universal Music France, and I had to move to Paris to pursue actually to have a singing career that was actually a hobby. Right. And then it became a job. Right. I had no idea that I was going to become a singer. I wanted to become an archaeologist. My dad said, no, you're going to be poor. And then huh. <laughs> he, he told me, you should be an architect or you should be uh, a lawyer or you should be uh, a doctor. Or, you the know, usual like the, engineer. The usual, exactly, yeah, yeah. The, the engineer. Like a real job. Yeah. So I told him, no, I want to be an archaeologist. He told me, no, it's not a real job. So I became an opera singer, which is not a real job too. <laughs> it's even less likely. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, but he saw that potential too. Yeah, yeah of course, of course. Yeah. But, you know, um, uh, Middle Eastern parents, when you live in the Middle East, you become a Middle Eastern parent. My parents were not ordinary parents, but they were still Middle Eastern, you know, yeah. uh, Levantine, Oriental. Yeah. So they had this uh, schema, like I'm the elder, uh, elder son. I had to have a nice, um, consistent job, you know. Yeah. But seeing this kid with a big personality and with so many talents and going to Paris to pursue a career and he signed with this huge record company yeah. and I was like okay uh, it's very unsure it's very fast what I'm gonna do I'm super young I'm 18 years old and my parents told me look you're gonna enroll school in fine arts you're gonna do something steady like for example graphic design next to it etc and along with your music studies this was it was it was a combo I couldn't escape. I was doing music studies and doing something at college. And that's when you decide for professional reasons to live abroad. Yeah, I had to actually. I had no choice. You had no choice. Yeah, the record company came to Beirut to visit my parents and told them, uh, if we're going to sign this contract, Matteo has to move to Paris. I was 18. I was in Terminal. I was in my last year of school. I'm embarrassed to ask you, how old are you now? I'm 37. You're 37. Yes. Okay, so that's 20 years ago 20 or so. 20 years ago, yeah. Doing my math, 2003. Exactly. <laughs> 2003, bad, huh? 2004. Yeah. 2003, 2004. I've heard you say this in different ways, in different interviews, that those years to you here in Lebanon were far more hopeful and they were brighter, not just in terms of a job. This is, I think, it's going from a hobby to a profession, but that your life and maybe your joy in this country it's, it was solid back then. I've heard you refer to Beirut as, as beautiful in those years. You know, I still say that I think I'm, we, Lebanese people who lived those years, were the most beautiful years of our lives. That's what I've heard you say, the most beautiful years. Of our lives. We can never forget those years. So that, is that up until, I mean, when, when is that exactly? Sorry to interrupt you. And yeah. I'm so sad that the younger generation didn't live this. So is that the 1990s? Or because is that when 2000, yeah. when, when we, we reached the year 2000, everything in Lebanon was flourishing and thriving. And we were back on the carte internationale of the world. And we were, we were out and about and everything was opening. Beirut was booming. We had tourists 
We had bars, restaurants, and I was growing up and discovering this gorgeous city that we had blooming for five years from 2000 to 2005, till the death of Hariri. It was, it was incredible. So that window, yeah. the early 2000s, yeah. to you, and I like the you're saying it firmly, it's the most beautiful years of your, of your life here in Beirut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you hinted at this earlier, and I say it all the time. Whoever is growing up today, let's say as a teenager now, it's a shame that they don't know what it feels like to emerge from the civil war. Exactly. Because I think that emergence, which took place really in the 90s, but then it sped up yeah. in the early 2000s, you had to have been here. Absolutely. To feel what it was like for downtown to reopen. Yeah, I, 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 I still say it to my friends. Can you imagine that we're so lucky to have lived this? And I was like so ashamed and sad that the new generation actually, wherever in the world, are yeah. living the worst moments. Because now we're living, it's the Moyen-Age, it's the Middle Ages now. The Dark <laughs> Ages, everywhere in the world. We're living horrible times. It's tragic all the time. And but social it, media is not doing us a favor uh, we'll get into that for yeah, sure because yeah, sure. i think we both are impacted by that of course uh, yeah but even going back to something like i don't know if anyone here was in lebanon back then luciano pavarotti saying in beirut can you imagine in city sportif Malab Malab i don't know was anyone here when luciano pavarotti was here no one right so, guys, you cannot imagine what happened in Lebanon during these five years. It's 95 or 96? Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. It crazy. Was crazy. It, was yeah. cra- it was insane. I remember we used to finish school yeah. on a Friday. We had to, r- to run to downtown Beirut, to Su'il Barghout, something called Su'il Barghout. Uh-huh, yeah. It was the flea market, yeah. but it was a social flea market with a lot of stands, a lot of animation. There was rock bands, rock festivals everywhere, pop festivals. There was something called Beat Machine. <laughs> You're the only person. Do you recall Now those? you've dated both of us. <laughs> Not just Beat Machine, Beat Machine 2, Beat yeah, Machine yeah. 3. It was amazing. At the forum. Exactly. We lived those years. <laughs> That's, you true. Yeah, That's true. That's true. It was incredible. And serious performers would come. Of course. But, you know, those are the years where it was four hours of electricity a day. The South, there was still war. The Syrian occupation was at its peak. Yeah, yeah, I know. But things were moving or they felt like they were moving in a better direction. Or, or I was too young to see the, the crap in the country. I was, I don't know. You know, a kid doesn't see those things. That's those true things. as well. You're yeah, right. Maybe I was too young. I was only seeing the bubbles, the the strass, the paillettes, the, the, the beautiful things, the music. That. But I think that turn for the better, even if it's gradual and even if it's bumpy, that's the kind of future you would want in a country anyway. Of course. There is a moment in our recent histories where things begin to turn in the wrong direction and they stay in that direction and they get worse over time. So we'll leave that to a bit later. But you're becoming a professional opera singer, and you're a countertenor. Just explain what it's like to be that rare, if you will, because you said it already, you're the only countertenor in the Middle East. That's I was. There are little countertenors coming from here. They're oh. like little mushrooms, and I'm super and, and happy. And do you get a knife and stab their throat? When no, they... <laughs> never. <laughs> I take them under my wing. I take them under And if they're cute, then you choke more them. than that. Oh, I... <laughs> That's called. That's. I think that's illegal. <laughs> Sorry, this is uh, no, my, no. my dark humor. <laughs> so when you're done choking them for pleasure, yeah. no, I'm joking. No. <laughs> so, so you 
you're rare anyway. It's something like less than 100 on yeah, the planet. Yeah, I guess, yeah. So what is that like to be, in a way, typecasted because you're stuck being a counter-tenor? Is that something that limits you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does. This is why you have to be smart and very creative and up to date with everything that's happening. And you have to be like very fluid with the style. Mm. You cannot be. St- we counter tenors. If you, if they, if someone wants to put us in a case uh, or in a drawer, we have to sing baroque music, sixteen. Oh, so yeah. Early music, 16, 17, 18th century max. So that it matches the castrati. Yes, the, the repertoire. Right. Of right. the castratis yeah. and Baroque music. So if you want to put us in a drawer, this is going to be our life. But no, it can be something more than that. I see. I'm, so, I, I'm a drag queen in Chicago. I'm Mary Sunshine. That's so, that, saving the best for last for okay. sure. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but in terms of, do you get, not, it's not that you're turned down. But are you not approached for other ranges that maybe you can do? Uh, look, I'm going to tell you what's happening. Uh, the, the opera world is switching and it, it's becoming more modern, if we can say. Mm-hmm. Like every, everybody thought that an opera singer has to be fat. Okay? Everybody thought that opera is boring. Okay? Yeah. Which I can understand if it's sung by a fat lady who looks like an encyclopedia on your shelf with dust even i i say no but uh, it has to be appealing it has mm. to to bring more people it has to be sexy so uh, this is why i find that our my generation of countertenor opened this gate of being a sexy and a modern countertenor and remove this dust out of the, the encyclopedia that we were. You know what I mean? Of this I image. See. So I was approached a lot because I was counter countertenor, but it, because I was sexy too. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm not fat. I'm fit. I'm a cute guy, cute Mediterranean. I was approached for big roles, although they can give those roles to more important countertenors than I, but they don't fit to the physique too. Oh, so they're also... Lo- I see. So yeah, stage, stage presence also... Yeah. Counts. Yeah, not only the voice now, it's right. the stage presence. And you so feel being that- a countertenor mm. is not sufficient anymore to be right. a nice singer. No, it has to be something else too. This is speculation. Is that across music in general? That it's harder just to sell your music today? You have to look good and yeah, be attractive? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. It ha- yeah. Look at Adele. Adele was fabulous when she was overweight, but she had at a certain point to become like a Hollywood star. And to yeah. look like a gorgeous holy, she has been shamed for this. Mm. But at a certain point, you have to look gorgeous to sell your fucking albums and your fucking voice. It's it's your visit carte de visite. And you feel like there's an advantage you have by being better on stage in that sense, and better meaning visibly more. Yeah, I had I had many propositions because of that. If I was, uh, f- I'm not gonna say fat. I I don't I don't like shaming. Um. I'm a very cool guy with everything and I'm very understanding, etc. But uh, malheureusement, like we say, uh, unfortunately, it's like that. I got many offers more than other people who had better voice than I in the conservatoire. And because I was like, I looked like that. You know, just unrelated to this part of the episode, I saw Matteo last week on the street and I said, you're really fit. And Matteo turned to me. He's like, you're well-rounded. 
Yeah, it was a compliment. It was a compliment. <laughs> I took it. I'm like, thank you. Wait a minute. <laughs> well-rounded. That's the word well. So, well. Yeah, well, you need well, not just rounded. Yeah. So you're training for music. You're training for your body too. And it takes a toll anyway when you're on stage. You have to be fit to survive, I think. Let alone Chicago Arabia is an entirely different production. It's, I, I'm sure it's physically exhausting. But we'll save that for later. You're an artist abroad, and you make a strategic decision to come back to Lebanon eight years ago. I'd like to explore that a bit. You're coming back when things are beginning to look bleak. And those are a lot of years abroad where you're able to excel. Universal is not a joke. I know. You make the decision to return to an art scene that has its limits even on a good day. And I don't think, you tell me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's a deep appreciation for opera in this country. It's there, but it's on the margins. Exactly. It's not a mainstream thing. Yep. But you want to be here. So why? Is it because you want to explore other things too? Is it that you find limitations abroad? Why, why make that professional decision to return home? Uh, there are many reasons, actually. Uh, I used to live in Paris for 10 years, and then I uh, went to Geneva because I had a contract with uh, Opera in Genève for two years. And then I decided to actually uh, come back to Lebanon. First of all, because there were too many countertenors in Europe going uh -huh. here and there. There was a lobbying for countertenors happening. Uh -huh. Okay. Third, my country needed me. So every time I introduced this voice to the Middle East, first of all, I got awards that I came back home with for the Middle East. Third, I was the only first countertenor to step into uh, Gulf opera houses uh, in Qatar, for example, when Doha, when I was invited by Sheikh Hamouza to sing with the full uh, Philharmonic Orchestra there, and I was the only countertenor singing there. It was huge with a full audience. So I, I told myself, I'm not going to be mixed with all the, these European countertenors. For example, in France, I'm going to be very blunt. In France, there's a production. We auditioned for the same role. There's a French countertenor mm. at the end. And there's Matteo, a Lebanese-Greek countertenor. We're going to pick the French. Why take the Lebanese and the Greek? Let's put the French on the pedestal. And let's give the stars to the French one. The other one is more exotic. Why? So I told myself there's a big market for me here, not only for the opera scene, but I can be not only a number in Lebanon, I can be someone in Lebanon. I can give the people their, 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 their thirst. I can feed their thirst with Baroque music and opera. I'm a Greek citizen. I'm a European citizen. I can travel all over the world for my production and my contracts. Why not be based in Beirut and nurture the city and give back? Because now Beirut gave me a lot. And now I'm ready to give back to Beirut. So this is why I came back. So in a way, it's also for professional reasons to yeah. excel further in your career. Of course. But that means... Less competition in a way that maybe you're disadvantaged by. Because exactly. you're saying something it sounds like you're equally talented, yeah. but there is a preference to someone from there than someone, yes. even if you're a Greek citizen. Of course. Interesting. So here you're actually going to get further with exactly. all the obstacles in front of you. And can you imagine that I got more work when I was based in Beirut to travel more outside? This happens to me all the time. Yeah. Actually... This happened, this, I'd never really think about this, but when I'm abroad, I don't get that many opportunities. Of course, because but, you're in the mass. Yeah. You're a number. Yeah. Here, 
You're, you're a product. You're unique. You're on, on your shelf alone. Now, this is a more psychological question. Yeah. Do you think that that ever stunts your development as an artist? Not for me, because I travel a lot. Okay, I so you're able to still... I do a yeah. lot of masterclasses. Yeah. I got a lot of awards. I, I work with the competition. I'm not a person who puts his uh, weapons away and, yeah. and feed on the, on the good things that's happening. No, and the comfort zone. Yeah. I travel. I do competitions. I, I get recruited. Uh, I do auditions, etc. So now less because my Elish lady, but uh, <laughs> now I just work with what's happening here in the region for me. And so you're not, and it's more than enough. I'm, I'm super busy. Yeah, I was gonna say you're you're able to work here too full time. Yeah. So, so you're not a Lebanese counter tenor. You're a counter tenor based here. Yeah. That's I think. Yeah. That, oh yeah. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. That keeps I think the edge also that you're also you have to improve yourself all the time. Exactly. You're never no. too relaxed. No. So let's go down the road of what it's like to do that as things are getting worse and worse. Mm. I'm going to tie in a few things here. I'm actually going to zigzag through time. You're, I mean, I think it's comfortable to say this publicly because you've said it publicly. You're involved when it comes to the rights of, or at least the decriminalization of homosexuality. Is it proud Lebanon that you're involved with to a degree at times or you've you've sort of supported them in their mission always proud always. lebanon Helm. i was always here since the end of uh, the, the the beginning of time you know i remember when Helm first opened and zico house Ugh. 20 years ago or Can so you, do you remember the, the 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 cinema evenings they were doing like a, oh wow yeah 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 yeah, yeah. This is before they were yeah, yeah, they were showcasing uh, yes. films and uh, independent movies, etc. Maybe you Not know. Not porn movie, guys, huh? No, no. <laughs> George Ezzi, if you know him. Yeah, yeah. Bien sûr. So, yeah so of course. George, I mean, the pioneers of those years as well. The beautiful years. These yeah. were beautiful years. You know what's interesting also back then? The, the defiance, let's say, was not there. The state was going after these places. But the F.U., back wasn't there there was yeah. real fear yeah and then slowly slowly it started you couldn't completely shut down header bardot opened in clemenceau it just closed two years ago i'm sure some of you know bardot and antari clemenceau there's an institution uh it felt like even though there was real fear and sometimes these clubs would get shut down or venues. There was always this adrenaline happening yeah, exactly. around those places. And it pushed people, I think, in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. And you know what? My generation in this country became more tolerant. Maybe the rules did, the laws didn't, but I think society opened its mind to the rights it of... It did. Yeah. And at least to decriminalize this issue once and for all. It was never decriminalized, but the tolerance spread. They were talking about decriminalization <laughs> <Big word>. whatsoever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, every time there was something happening. Right. Yeah. And if you look at it over time, let's say from the moment Helm starts until more recent events that took place, I think the net positive happened. Meaning places that are gay-friendly are still open. Om did not shut down. No. Other places that are well-known in this country, they're open still. I think that's a positive trend. But at the same time, the reaction 
which is not state anymore, it's societal, has also increased. Case in point, what we both experienced was Jnud al-Rab. Even though it's not many people that showed up, it was maybe a dozen or so of young kids scaring mostly through social media. They were using social media to their advantage. Regardless, it's still shocking to see that happening here. Yeah, yeah. In Marim Khayyib. Now, that is the background to the question I'm going to ask you. Do you feel like your expression is being limited out of fear? That maybe you think twice before you're a drag queen in Chicago, Arabia? Never. 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 Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very blunt about the situation. I have always been an artist who never got vulgar or provocative in any way. Anyway, no, nor my sexuality or my art or my message in my art, etc. I was the first one maybe in Lebanon to put eye, uh, eyeliner when I was like 13 or 14 years old and going out to uh, Bardo or whatsoever or a cafe, etc. I always do it with elegance or with class or with a message because I was an opera singer. I was working on stage. It was an image like I gave, but yeah. never, never. I was a little bit attacked when I was a kid. For, few, for these reasons? Few, no, a few hooligans on the, in a cafe or in a bar. Yeah. They were trying to bully us because we were a bunch of, uh, of guys in Beirut, uh, no girls with us, coming back to Zatar Uzaid from a club, etc. Looking a little bit flashy, flashier than the, uh, than the gray others. But uh, Unfortunately, that reminds me of my own nights coming back. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that different. Actually. Yeah, so... <laughs> Yeah, it happened once, twice, but I was uh, I was never afraid of doing art or so, like for Chicago, for example. No, I was never in fear of doing my role of Mary Sunshine okay, because so I was a drag queen. Why does that climate not shake you? Is it a matter of it shake? It it's, it it does shake me because it it comes. It, it evolves around the, the 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 freedom of speech. Because we are not, we are a country of message. We are a country of diversity. We cannot tolerate this climate of uh, hate and this climate of uh, repression. We have never been like that. In all the countries of the world, you have bullies, but not like that because there was a drag queen show and a few people saw that on the on the motor, on their motorcycle going up to Kermes Zaytun. Yeah. Yeah. And they called their friends and come, come, come. We need, uh, we need backup to, 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 to kill those people. No, yani it, it cannot happen like that. In the middle of Marim Khayel and Jumeizi, we are the hub of artists and, uh, right. and uh, colorful people. No, mafik, mafik. I was shocked, but not because I'm, uh, I fear them, because of what's happening with people. Like, you know, after Saturday, what happened? Media and Wine uh, published a week later after my the big Saturday, you know, they, they put like some little excerpts of... Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Like the, these reels on exactly, Instagram. Exactly, the yeah. reels. I got threats from a woman because apparently she read that Jesus uh, hates gay people and he used to spit on them like he spit on Marie-Madeleine. He was the only one who didn't spit on Marie Madeleine. Yeah, apparently, yeah. she, she did it. Yeah, wrong. she read it wrong. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> she really no, got no, it no. wrong. I swear, I used to have like those threats from with crosses yeah. and uh, uh, spit because I was uh, talking 
about my house that has been uh, destroyed after the blast and how I renovated my house. So I don't know how she, uh, she did uh, in her own head that I was a gay guy and I deserved to, to die in my house with my dog and uh, Jesus had to spit on me. So this climate yeah. is hostile. But in your day-to-day life, let's say, because we both walk down that same street all the time, never. do you ever think twice about expressing yourself differently? Never, never. No. I, ha- I have always the, 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 the respect of everyone, everyone, from the butcher to the valet parking to the, the guy who sells glo- groceries. Everybody loves me because I'm very polite, I'm very elegant, I'm very classy. Uh, I don't know if they know who I am and what I do, etc., but uh, never, never. That principle, which is at times, it's dangerous, but that principle to me is absolutely, un- you can't, it's something you have to hold on to. Because I think the moment you start rethinking your lifestyle, you've lost. This is it. I, I think it's so important. And actually not to leave a place that's under attack. It's a role, it's a role, it's a role that you have to have since... Uh, your early years this is not something new at school yeah when they bully you when you hide they will bully you more yeah. when you stand up nobody will bully you this happened to me when i was a kid there was bullies because i was different i never got bullied yeah because i became the bully <laughs> yeah no you cannot do this so this is the same thing with art this is why unless you get threats from the force de sécurité from the amna al or they, they, they want to jail you for something that you didn't do. You know how they, they, they work here. I mean, 10 days, ago, 10, days, 10 days ago in downtown, there was a protest that was not directly about this yeah, issue. Yeah, I was not here. But it was related. Yeah, I saw it on, uh, on Instagram. And there were, I mean, there were physical no, this was This was injury. out of this world. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm glad to hear that it doesn't phase you in your own expression. I feel the same way. But that voice, to me, it's diminished when it's abroad. It's powerful when it's here. Because you can, you can talk about this country abroad. You can scream and shout about it abroad all the time. I don't think it sticks as well. No, it's not. It's, you have, it doesn't have the same impact. Right. Nor the same content. Yeah. Which is why I'll, I'll throw the word on you, even though it may, you may not own it. I think you're also an activist in addition to being an artist. Because yeah, exactly. You're, yeah. And that is the role of somebody... Who's expressing themselves. This is why I told you I came back. I had a message to give. My country needed me. Abroad, okay. I used to come back for Christmas to sing for concerts, for Easter, to come for a festival. I did Beit Din. I did. Uh, I was signing with Balbak, and then there was the war in 2006. And it's not the same thing. I you agree. Have, I, when, I, when I'm here, it's different. The message is different. The content is different. What somehow survives through all this climate of tragedy is Lebanese culture, the way I understand it, and I think it's the way you understand it too, in that it's not necessarily inventing something new. It's maybe taking from an idea that's already there and making it unique, yeah. let's say. We're so good at that. Yeah, it's not. I don't think much is actually original. A lot of it is uniquely reinterpreted. Look at Fayouz and Mozart, please. Look at Fayouz, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Don't listen too much to Mozart after listening to Fayouz. Yeah, but let's also talk about Chicago, Chicago, Arabia. 
Obviously, it's a story born from a different era in the United States. It's the 1920s in Chicago. It's the Art Deco years. Art Deco. And there's crime on the streets. There's press covering the news. There's death. Uh, corruption. Corruption. And when it was first announced that there was going to be a Chicago Arabia in Lebanon, it made sense. It made sense. There's a parallel story. But it's uniquely Lebanese. And I recommend anyone who's here next year, if you're here, watch Chicago Arabia when it comes back to Lebanon. Something you cannot miss. I was there the first night, opening night at Casino du Liban, the ambassador's... Uh, Salle des ambassadeurs. Salle des ambassadeurs. And we were talking about this before. It's an old, it's an old venue. You actually sit sideways and then you have to watch the performance yeah they did it so, on purpose they wanted to create this cabaret uh, yeah oh they did that mood. intentionally yeah, yeah. B- bad idea yeah yeah because you end up with your neck looking like that <laughs> but while your neck is moved that way towards the end or not not the end really but it's i think it's the second act that out of nowhere mateo shows up no first act. Oh, so, sorry it's the end of the f- end of almost end of the first act right, yeah you're right i'm sorry End of the first act is Mary Sunshine, reinterpreted as Nur Shemes, reinterpreted by Matteo. And it was so beautiful. Because the moment you came on, it's like, holy shit, it's Matteo. <laughs> but you're in, in an orange wig. You're freshly shaved, so it's not easy to tell it's you. And you're already surrounded by a number of talented dancers an orchestra right behind you and the moment you're on stage you know what i thought of it's not this i mean it's hard to compare anyone to this man but it felt like a freddie mercury moment where everyone is like yeah 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 that kind of gasp absolutely yeah i felt it i felt it on stage you felt it too yeah there was this moment Mm. of yeah and i don't think it's because there's a drag queen on stage i think it's because there's something unique happening. And then we find out it's you. Not everyone knew it's you right away. There, there was, it was magic in the room. So I want to go into Chicago. Thank you for these words. Really, it's, it's, it's very touching. I meant it. I actually, uh, the New York Times wrote a lovely piece about Chicago. Arabia. Oh my God, we were on the first front page. Can you imagine? In these hard times. I was very fortunate. The, uh, the author, I, her name escapes me now. She's a Lebanese-American yeah. journalist. She watched an episode I had on MTV. I-, I was really happy that this happened because it's the story that needs to be shared. Tragedy, Lebanon, on the streets of Beirut, and the country is suffering, economic despair, violence, and then there's this comfort in casino, art. So I want to go down this road with you. What it's like to do this while Lebanon is injured? What it's like to perform under stress? what it's like to not be paid the amount you deserve. I'm sorry to say this, but everyone in Lebanon is not getting what they deserve in all walks of life. I've heard this, uh, this sentence all my life. Okay. All my life. So, I, oh, yeah. there's another sentence. This is a graveyard for talents. Lebanon is the graveyard of talents. So this yeah. is very harsh to hear since you... I, I think you began to become a, become an artist. Yeah, but like I said before, and I'm going to repeat it endlessly, we artists 
have a mission in Lebanon. Lebanon is a cultural place. It's a hub for artists in the region. We create everything and then we export it to the Arab countries, then to the world. It has always been the case. So if we artists leave, there won't be any Lebanon anymore. There will be hooligans and uh, Zahran and corruption. So we are the, the, we are the image of Lebanon. Look at Elisab, Zuhair Murad, uh, uh, the, 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 the fashion people. Yeah. Look at the new generation of fashion people. Khikor Shabotian, Rami Adi, George Azzi and Osta, and all of these people, Hassan Bazaza. All these people are maintaining the cultural role of Lebanon in the region. We're not going to talk about shitty politics or what's happening in the economical crisis. Despite the economical crisis, we are the first one to be on the red carpets worn by all the stars. We are everywhere, not only with fashion, with art. Look at the artists, the painters. We are in the Mena Fair, in Fondation Bogossian, yeah. in all the museums in the world. Look at the singers. They're shining everywhere in France. Every single year, there's a Lebanese in The Voice France or in The Voice anywhere in the world. In Arab Got Talent, look at the Mayas. Yeah. Yeah. This country is not a graveyard. Everyone says it's a graveyard. It's not. It's a school. It's a, it's a college for talents. Because what we live, the misery that we live, we want to hide the misery by giving the best of our soul. The best. You know what I mean? I, Because everything is shitty, yeah. we're going to shine. We're going to outshine the shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's well said. I swear. You know, my story with The Voice France was in a very critical time. It was the Saura. I was on the street every day. Yeah. Every day, I had hope for my country that finally, finally, it's going to boom and we have to be on the street every day. I was there with my flag, with my friends, rain, not rain, cold, not cold. And they call me and they tell me, we want you in The Voice. We want you to represent Lebanon. I was like, what the fuck? I'm an opera singer. Nobody's going to turn. What, what are you talking about? They want pop singers. They want someone who sings Arabic. They want someone uh, pretty like Hibatawaji or they don't want a beardy guy who sings uh, counter-tenor voice. It's weird. No, no, we want you. I just want you to do the last audition. No other auditions. So I take the plane. I go to Paris. I meet the people of The Voice and I do the, the last audition and they tell me uh, the same night that they want me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the final audition in front of the judges and they're going to shoot it in the, with the F.A. The dilemma that I live, that I'm going to leave the street and leave my people and leave my country and leave my gorgeous Beirut to go to the, to, to the voice. And I was like, no, the voice, uh, Lebanon needs me. I need to, uh, I need to shine. People, those people on the street, my fellows on the street need that Matteo to be on the voice. I'm going to do my revolution there. So I went with zero hope because... I thought that nobody was going to turn and I got the four judges turning and I <laughs> cried for my country and, I and, and there were a lot of friends of mine that came to join me with the Lebanese flags in the audience. It was such a magical moment. This is why I tell you, though, this country, despite everything, it give, you can give, the artist gives the best out of him. It's a radical question, but do you think art in Lebanon now depends on Lebanon being injured? Because what you're describing is a constant, a constant search for beauty in tragedy. 
Yes. I, in a way, you're describing, I think, our... our no, but d- Lebanon makes it easy on artists to create something beautiful. This is why there's a lot of artists in Lebanon. Do you think that's why other artists also get inspiration from this country of too? Course. Yeah, I think so. There's yeah. a lot of European people coming to Lebanon yeah. and they want to live the Lebanese. And they do... I have a Greek friend. Well, in Greece, there was they have their shit too, but she was living in Paris. She told me, I'm too comfortable here. I cannot create. She came to yeah. Lebanon. She yeah. lived for a year and she did a beautiful exhibition in the Met in New York. So discomfort produces better work. Yes. So is that why Chicago Arabia, in your mind, was able to pull off that kind of experience yes because we, actually chicago at the beginning had been has been postponed twice oh there was the soda and then there was the blast right so they couldn't do it yeah and i was even casted by that i had no idea i, I learned later oh and then also oh, they didn't have your role no the, okay no and this time it has been done despite everything so this word despite changed everything yeah you also took, not you, Chicago Arabia went to Beit Din Festival too. I didn't get the chance to experience it Oh my it God, it was magical. I would have loved to see the backdrop of Beit Din with the stars. And the, oh yeah, and the arches around us with the palace. And yeah. The stars and the moon and the, yeah. it was crazy. I saw it in Ambassade, Salle, de, Salle des Ambassadeurs. With my neck. <laughs> but it's an experience. And I'm glad to hear that it's coming back next year, Beit Din Festival. Yeah. So I'm going to circle back now to something that's in the background of this conversation, we take, it, we take it for granted in Lebanon. You've said it already, you're a Greek citizen. You're a Greek-Lebanese citizen. And that, to me, makes perfect sense. I don't think about it. Uh, I'm not a Greek citizen. I'm not Greek. But we're as Lebanese as each other. I was born in the States. I have a U.S. passport. But you and I are Lebanese equally, on equal terms. And there's something in history that I think we don't always appreciate enough, is that there's a reason why you have that type of community here. It's an accident. And people forget that Lebanon hosted many communities from the region, and they shined here. Of course. Not all of them were disenfranchised, but many sought their fortunes in Lebanon. And then now you have last names that are shaped by Greek history in Lebanon. And that's because this country was able to do that. And then you have the whole Christian Muslim thing too. But communities, communities sought refuge here and found expression. Because it was a hub. It was, a, it was the hub, the center of the world. Exactly. After the shoot of the Ottoman Empire. Exactly. And then... These are years neither one of us was alive to experience. You also had intellectual refuge here. You had intelligentsia here. It's impossible to imagine and this today. And the freedom, freedom, Ronnie. Freedom. freedom. They came for the freedom. Right. But I mean, in a day where, I mean, it's, it's 50, 60, 70 years ago, every country in this part of the world had a newspaper published from Beirut. Every artist that wanted to make it in the world had to make it in Beirut. Now we don't think about this. Every airplane that wanted to do an escal had to do their escal in Beirut. That's half a century ago, if not longer. That's a cosmopolitanism that has been on the decline since. 
And today, I think we're witnessing the last stretch of it. And I know people like to talk about Lebanon long-term in a positive way. I don't know if that's true. And I'm, maybe I'm lucky or unlucky, I don't know. I get to talk to everyone <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and I've come to terms with this. After five, six years of talking, it's an instinctual feeling that I think increases, is that you can't naturally expect the unique identity of Lebanon to stay. It may well fade into oblivion. And that's because cities rise and fall. Exactly. And I think Beirut has fallen to a point, maybe, maybe, of no return. And let me give you an analogy. Your building is under repair. My building, one elevator is still broken, but you can live in it. We are three and a half years away from the blast. We both, psychologically, know that it will never be held to account. We're living in a neighborhood that went through the largest non-nuclear blast in modern history, and every resident on that street knows there's no accountability for what happened. That, I think, has a heavy toll on anyone that wants to live the Lebanon that they think is here. It may not. And we live next door now to a conflict that's raging. I think the reason we're looking at our phone all the time And I don't want this to be subjective, but I think it's an instinctual thing. We're looking not because we want to keep count of everyone being killed in Gaza, even though we do check that. I think we're checking more frequently. If we're embarked in the same adventure. Exactly. And we're looking at news from Hezbollah, not news from Hamas, which means, and you said this before we arrived, you were listening to the helicopter oh flying God, over. Yeah. It brings back memories. Of course, we have PTSD, all of us. It brings back memories to 2006. For me, it brings back memories to 1996. The blast is in the background all the time. I think everything dies with that, including cosmopolitanism. And I think over time it's being proven true. But you sound like a more hopeful person and a more optimistic person. I am, because it's, it's in my nature. I'm a positive person. I'm very hopeful, because without hope, I cannot survive. I can't. There's a flame inside me that has to be always lit. It's my nature. I cannot do any... I try to be more realistic sometimes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a dreamer. I'm realist, fair enough. But I'm a positive person, and I always see hope. At the end of the tunnel, I know there are going to be better days. I'm surrounded by positive people who help me stay like I am, as a smiley person, very creative, giver, giving. We need to, Roni. We're the artists. We cannot, we cannot die. And this country cannot die. We have a message to, to say. It's, we live dark times. Paris is not the same anymore as before. I go now to Paris. It's crap. I cannot stay for more than five days. I cannot live in it anymore. It's not the same as 2004. We live in dark ages everywhere. So can you imagine we Lebanese in Lebanon, we are so badly surrounded. We're so badly surrounded. We have, we have the enemies everywhere. We're stuck between the problem in Syria, the problem uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Israel slash Palestine. We're, they, you have Iran, you have the States. Everybody is doing their war inside us. And we're... I'm not an expert, I'm not a politician, I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but we, we are a sold country. 
in France, on est un pays vendu. Everyone sold the country to anyone. So it's half Iran, half uh, states, half European. Everyone wants a piece of this cake. So you know what, actually, let's wrap it up with another thought. And you, we talked about it briefly. The idea that you suggested, which is we're all going through something bad on the moment on the planet. Yeah. And you don't sound fond of Paris one bit. But you also mentioned the issue of the social media sphere making us all a little jittery and anxious. Do you think that's part of the wider problem that we don't need to know all the time every bad thing that's happening? And this could make a tense place go insane. Is that how you relate yes, to... Yes, and you have the choice actually to unfollow the things that you don't want don't to listen or watch. But the thing is that the news travel really fast with this. And you have the hate speech and the... the, 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 the or even the threat you got the from the... The threats. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm invincible with the, those kind of things. I don't care, but it, it has an impact. It ha- even if it's 0.1%, it has an impact. It's crazy. When someone from your country, actually, she's Lebanese, and she tells me that she wants me dead because Jesus wants to spit on me, and she read in the, the Bible that... I was like, oh my God. But this interconnectivity across the world, do you think that's why you find this experience elsewhere? Because I've never heard anyone compare our tragedy to other cities the way you've done it. You make it feel like the whole place is on fire. Yeah, it is. Do you think it's because of that? That we're all... I don't know. It's, it's one of the reasons. I cannot blame it all on, the, on social media, but... Really, Roni, we live in really dark ages everywhere because I have friends all around the world. I'm a very international person and I lived in Paris for a lot of time. So I have really very cosmopolitan friends everywhere in the world. I'm not talking about Bali. I'm not talking about Mykonos. I'm yeah. talking about like living in cities and working and being part of a system. Everyone is unhappy and searching for something to, to, to relieve them because... Uh, it's, it's wrong everywhere, everywhere. It's very harsh. L- living now is very harsh. Even I, being a kid now is very harsh. They have access to, to, to iPads and they have access to information. They have access to very big images. It's, it, it's crazy what's happening. I get the feeling that there's a shared feeling that opportunities are lacking. Yeah, and, and it's that, full, full everywhere. It's, full, it's saturated. Yeah, and I don't know often how true that is, but it's a feeling and it's... It is shared by many people across the world. In Beirut, it's so severe and it's so overwhelming that it can, it forces you to not look anymore and to disengage to a degree. But In Beirut, everything is a very extreme. Yeah. Like you want to drink, you're, you drink. You want to go out, you go out. You want to have a war, you have the biggest war. Yeah, but, everything But is that so kind strange. of stepping away, I know that the blast did something to you that's never been done to you directly, you lost your voice. Yeah, I did. Not from physical injury, but from psychological pain. And it took you six months for your voice to come out on its own once more. I'm really happy that happened. Uh, It took me a few months to find the right words to talk about anything related to that tragedy. Initially, I tried. It didn't feel right. It felt like this is not what I really feel took me time and i think that's fine in this country sometimes you need to step back a bit to reclaim your voice you did that you sing for a living you also paint we can get into that in the q a 
And you're one of the one of the most talented performers I've seen on stage. Thank you. So with that said, thank you, Mateo Khadr. Oh my God! Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Rony. Round of applause to Mateo. <laughs> thank you, guys. <laughs> thank you so much. Let's take a 10-minute break. Order anything you want, and Q and A. If you treat him right, he'll sing. <laughs> So guys, I'm gonna sing a little, a little part of uh, the fifth element. I don't know if you, if if someone watched the fifth element. So okay, so it's uh, actually an aria by Donizetti. It's called uh, the opera is called Lucia della Mermur, and uh, this is the part when she becomes crazy. I'm not gonna sing the whole part, but. Uh <laughs> Mi colpi di sua voce Thanks for that. Welcome. Because I think talking about you being a countertenor without you singing doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that, was, that was incredible. Thank you. Can you tell me, just before the Q&A, do you need vocal training? Yes, of course. Every day. Every day. Every day. It's so, a muscle. So how, do you go, is it something you do on your own or do you need... Help no, I do it on my own, but actually, it's funny, because yesterday, I got my first vocal therapy massage. Vocal therapy massage? Vocal massage. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. She, uh, uh, her name is Marie-Renne. She's the first one to do this in Lebanon. Mm. And uh, I went to her place, to her clinic, and uh, she did a massage to my larynx and my pharynx and my instrument, actually. So like is, you, like you do a ther- therapy for your muscles, you uh-huh. do a therapy for the muscles, for the vocal muscle. And it's incredible. And that is meant to maintain the muscle strength? Exactly. Okay. See, like, for example, if you have an injury, a vocal injury, or you use your voice a lot, like yeah. you, or, or on the radio or TV, etc., and you feel like you don't want to go and take medication, you can do a therapy, a manual therapy for your voice. This is incredible. That's interesting. So this is a daily routine. Yeah, I don't do the um, the vocal massage every day. Right. So yesterday was my first time ever. But uh, I I take good care of my voice. I train every day in the morning before going to the gym. So it's perfect. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a it's a it's a routine. It's a routine of 20 years. Yeah. To have the voice uh, very safe. So yalla, people. So guys, get creative. Any questions you want about his vocal massage, quote unquote. <laughs> Or other massage, whatever. Or his other massage. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. A- anything you want to ask Matteo, 
Okay. Uh, hi. Hi. So you? Can you just introduce yourself before sure. who you are? Do I stand up or? No, no, no. Stay, stay, stay. Don't stand up. No stress. Okay. Uh, can you sing? <laughs> <laughs> I can try. Uh, so uh, my name is Mark Asaf. Hi, Mark. And hi. And it's a pleasure to meet you both. Uh, Ronnie, I, sh- I know on social media and Matteo also as well. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask, um, do you see yourself respected as an LGBTQ member because of your talent and because of your class? As, as uh, contrary to many other LGBTQ members that are not uh, as well respected? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, the fact that I do uh, a classy job in a classy way or I, I reach a certain kind of people or actually I dress in a not a very provocative way. Even though I was Mary Sunshine on Chicago, I was a drag queen, but I did it with elegance and class. I had uh, zero bullying. So I think this plays a lot. This is why I tell my fellow uh, people in the community that if you want to tell a message, if you want to say something, if you want to raise your voice, or if you want to express yourself, do it with class and zero vulgarity. Because sex sells, vulgarity sells, but you can also be bullied for it. This is it. Yeah. Thank you. I have a question which may pertain to your career or not, but I'm just wondering, do you find that some roles that are uh, meant for countertenors are being immediately become trouser roles and therefore the counter, the authentic countertenors are left out? I'm sorry. There's, there's, you don't there's, understand that? No, no, there was a gap actually with yeah. the sound. Okay. Do you find that some roles that are dedicated to countertenors be, before they're even offered to countertenors are given off to as trouser roles? To other roles? To, to role of women? Who, oh, to women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. we did a war. Trouser actually. Role, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was like 10 years of war with women uh, because they were actually taking the roles of the countertenors and dressing up like men. Right. So, yeah, for a decade. And now not anymore because uh, we're here. We're strong. Yeah. We're well, <laughs> no, uh, the reason I asked it, I had a, a friend in uh, New York City who knows that I'm a real opera buff and sort of blamed me that the countertenor roles were going to, uh, to women. And I, I have nothing, obviously, to do with that. But he sort of felt that being an opera person that I, you know, supported it. And I, I didn't, but I assumed there just weren't encounter tenors for the roles. No, no, actually, there's plenty of counter tenors for women's role. And now even more, because we're discovering a lot of, you know, being a counter tenor is not only singing in one pitch. Being a counter tenor has, has uh, there's a lot of tessitures for the counter tenor. So yeah. you have the counter tenor sopranisto, you have the counter tenor mezzo, like me, and you have the counter tenor alto. And yeah. now we have a lot of guys stealing roles of women. So this is crazy. It's the that other way crazy. around. Yes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's the other way around. Like uh, we have like two sopranistas. Now they outstage Nathalie Dossier or even the biggest sopranos of the world. They're singing the roles of the women in the Baroque opera. So yeah, this is the era of the countertenor. We're very happy. This is our revenge. <laughs> very interesting. Very good. Yeah. 
Thank you. Thank you. Other questions? Someone else? Yalla, be curious, guys. I'm here to, uh, to answer. The gentleman. Yeah. What could we expect? Just, just, just say who you are, please. Oh, my name is Scott Bezade, and I'm from Connecticut in the United States. What could we expect from you in the future? We know that you're going to be back here to do Chicago again. Yes. And you're going to be going through the Middle East doing yep. on tour for Chicago. What other things, what other projects do you have in the back of your mind, in plans? Sure. Uh, first of all, I have a big concert coming here in Lebanon, um, the 21st of November, in Assembly Hall in AUB. It's going to be Matteo solo with the whole orchestra, Orchestra Barocca. I'm going to be singing actually gorgeous arias from the, it's going to be a ballad from the eras of the countertenor from the Baroque era. Then I'm going to go into the romantic scene, the 19th century. Then it's a big challenge. I'm going to sing Fairuz Asmahan and uh, uh, some arias of the Arabic repertoire. So uh, I'm doing a big countertenor challenge. This is in the near future. Uh, then start, uh, then in December, there are going to be several Christmas concerts, of course. Uh, and starting January, we'll be touring with Chicago and um, the Gulf. We're, we're signing with uh, uh, Saudi Arabia for maybe a residence with Dubai Opera and uh, Cairo, Cairo Opera House. And then we'll be coming to Beirut uh, again. And in the meantime, I'm working on my solo, first solo exhibition, uh, painting exhibition, where it's going to be held in February. And I'm recording uh, something new with uh, Adonis, uh, Anthony from Adonis. So he's writing me a song. So this is coming in Excellent. February too. So voila, <laughs> you have the full schedule. You really need to see Chicago, Arabia. I can't, I mean, you have to experience it. It's worth the visit. It's worth the trip. No, no, really, it's incredible. Even I, I actually, I came late on the production because I was stuck in Brussels in an art residency in Fondation Bocotian. So they handed me the script and I left. So they were training here and they were rehearsing. And I came back to Lebanon quite late and I discovered actually everything that has been made and I was completely shocked because the level is super high. Even um, Chicago in the uh, US, uh, they called the production here and they told her, they told Naila, my friend who's the producer, that on the 43 licenses they gave around the world, the Lebanese one is one of the most beautiful ones. So we're very happy about that. Really. Voila. Daniel? <laughs> Hi, Matteo. Hi, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel Aisa, for those who don't know me. Um, you mentioned discovering your musical abilities kind of, you know, serendipitously by chance when you were nine, when you, you know, were playing around with voice impressions. Um, two-part question. What age do you think children should start pursuing or nurturing um, musical ability, abilities, whether, you know, vocal abilities or playing a musical instrument? And two, have you considered working with children in Lebanon, perhaps, uh, you know, in establishing your own institution for training, you know, the up-and-coming generation of opera singers or singers in general? Uh, thank you, Daniel, for the question. They're very um, accurate. Uh, first, uh, the sooner the better for the kids to start nurturing uh, their ability to play and their talent, actually. The 
the earlier the better. For the voice, you have to be very careful. You nurture the voice, you give the, 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 the right path, the right technique, etc. But you have to be very careful during the puberty, please, because it's a very sensitive stage for the voice, because the voice is muting, and it, if, uh, if not well uh, uh, canalized, 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 like uh, if it's not on the right, sorry, if it's not on the right track, oh, well managed, uh, mm. she or he can break his voice. So, uh, Yeah, you have to be very careful with that. But the soonest, the better. You can start even at age three, age four to handle the, uh, an instrument, to, to, to start singing right, to see if the voice is good, actually, because you cannot nurture a talent without having the talent because it's uh, psychologically very damaging. So to tell him that she, she knows how to sing, but actually she sings really uh, bad, no, this is not good. Anyway, and uh, for the other part of the question, yes, Actually, I've thought about that, and I'm, I'm giving private lessons, uh, lessons if anyone is interested. Uh, for the kids, not yet, because it's, it, we have to have a, a sort of pedagogy, but uh, for elderly, yes, of course, I mean, absolutely. I'm here to, to make my, uh, my talent travel. Well, merci. Hello. Hi, Samuro. Hi. <laughs> Um, my name is Samir, Samir Herman. I'm uh, Lebanese, but born and raised in Venezuela. The, uh, the interview is here, not there. I know. <laughs> I'm giving an introduction to a bit of background. I'm Matteo's best friend. Yeah. <laughs> and I have asked you this question, but I want to ask it on behalf of anyone watching. Because um, I myself am a musician and a frustrated artist, let's call it. Frustrated artist. Yes. So what advice do you have for people who want to become emerging artists and they're living... Uh, with the current situation that we're living here and what do you think should be the first step they should take to put themselves out there? Uh, yes, this is a very um, good question. Actually, yes, struggling artists are the main problem when you are an artist. Uh, the only thing, I'm not going to say like... Uh, Sentences like believe in yourself and uh, quoting uh, weird things that you see on Instagram. The thing is that you have really to denote yourself from the others. You have to be different in a way because the, 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 the competition is fierce. Uh, a, a product like you, if you're mainstream, we can find thousands and even better. This is the thing that they told us on The Voice, actually, and at school. Uh, You, there's many countertenors. There's many countertenors mezzos. There's many countertenors who can sing in many languages, who can have phonetically a very good sound or very good voice. They're even better countertenors than you. But what are you here, here to offer more? So this is, this is a personal thing, actually. You have to offer something different than the other. For example, you, you come from Venezuela. There's nobody who thinks, uh, thinks Spanish here in Le uh, Lebanon. You can do a crossover between Spanish and Arabic music. It can sell like crazy. Voila. I'm no expert, huh? but I'm, uh, voila. So I'm, I'm talking about my experience. May, may I ask, have you ever used Greek to your advantage? Yes, here? of course. Yeah. No. Greek, uh, Japanese, wherever I'm in the country, I, I sing for them. Uh, Japanese? Yes. Like, for example, uh, I went uh, when I had my tour in Germany. I don't speak German, but 
I had I have a lot of friends in Germany, and I do a lot of concerts in uh, Germanophonic uh, countries like Austria, oh, okay. uh, Switzerland, etc. So I had to learn a lot of phonetic German and a lot of leads and uh, German songs. Is that because opera is good for that? You're you're forced to. No, 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 no. no. Uh, in school, we learn phonetic in Latin. We learn Italian. We learn oh, okay. a lot of languages yeah. scripted in the operas. But uh, uh, the thing is, I discovered recently that uh, opera can go with everything because uh, you exaggerate the diction, the phonetics. So in Arabic, for example, I always feared that I couldn't sing opera in Arabic, but it goes really well when I sing Atininaya Wagani, for example, by Fairuz. It yeah. can give a wonderful uh, result, really. I think I heard you once mention this too that Lebanon produced the first yes opera in, in the twenties. Yes, twenties. And the first of the first opera was in Arabic was in Lebanon. Yeah, but it's not but something we, yeah, we because, don't really because it's niche. Yeah, the opera scene is niche. This is why we cross over with other artists. Right. So this is why I do pop opera. I did shows in Bardo. Um, ten years ago, it was it, it was called the Matteo and the Matteo and Gaga show. I, I, I took songs from Lady Gaga and I put them in opera with Derbeke. It was it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many reasons Bardot closed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tony. <laughs> Other questions? I think I was there. That I think I saw you there yeah, long ago. Yes, exactly. <laughs> King Matteo. Hi, Matteo. Also, I'm Madame. Hello. Gina. I'm Hi, from Gina. New York City. Hello, Gina. And um, my mom had mentioned it too before the Q&A. Um, what do you think will, or how long do you think it will take, or what do you think it will take for opera to maybe become, to have a, instead of just be a little niche, to to be vibrant again and to be a part of the Beirut uh, you know, in Beirut and the Lebanese culture again and for people to love it? A very good question. Thank you so much. Um, the thing is that throughout the years, throughout the years, there have been a lot, a lot, a lot of democratization of the opera scene in Lebanon and in the Arab world. First of all, in the Arab world, because of the creation of the uh, opera houses, like in Dubai, in Kuwait, uh, in Qatar, there's a lot of opera houses emerging. So they bring a lot of commercial, these big productions, etc. So people are sensitive with these commercial, like Carmen, uh, uh, Norma, etc. All the big operas and productions are coming to the Arab world, which is great. The sad part is that Lebanon, that's uh, who is the hub of the culture and the creator of the first opera in the Middle East, has no opera house. So uh, we rely on those festivals and international festivals to shine and uh, have our place uh, in the opera scene. Um, throughout the years, opera has been democratized in Lebanon. For example, I'm going to give you uh, an example in the festivals. So a few years ago, I was invited to, to sing and to be part of the Beit Din Festival. Uh, when I first started my concerts in Lebanon, it was in 2007. I was invited in 2008. The range of people changed. I was seeing new faces. I was seeing kids coming. I was seeing young people coming to the opera. So there's a path 
arriving here in Lebanon, there's a lot of things happening. But the problem is that culture, not only opera, culture is not a priority anymore. We have other stuff, not we, but the country has other stuff to suffer from, to um, other problems to deal with. And unfortunately, uh, it's uh, putting like uh, a frein, Yeah, a barrier to the opera to take its place here in Lebanon, unfortunately. If it was a thriving country with no problems and no economic crisis, I guess it would have uh, been outstanding for us to reach the stars. Look at the Arab countries. They don't have problems and they have production at the opera house in Dubai or in Oman every week. So I guess this is because of the economical and sociological problems that you have. I'm sorry. But we're working on that. <laughs> Maybe time for another question. One more, if anyone has one. Did, did you have one? Gentleman with the beard? No? Oh, I thought you were. <laughs> so, sorry, I thought. The whole family. The whole, yeah, yes. but wonderful family, actually. Yeah. You're so cute. May I, actually, could I ask you guys, what brings you here? <laughs> oh. Well, thanks for doing that. You're adorable. Perfect timing. <laughs> Oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, my God. Wonderful. Okay. Hi. Uh, so uh, I'm going to ask another question, sure. if I may. Uh, do you think opera is foreseen as something foreign? And that is why it's not very well accepted in Lebanon? Uh, let's say it's not part initially of our culture. We are Levantine people. But in Beirut, since we are a cosmopolitan city, I guess we're, we have always been very attracted attracted to these kind of things. Hello, we have to admit that people and the demography has changed throughout the years. The, the people who, the cultured people of Lebanon, the elite that used to be more of a 60-40, a ratio of 60-40 became 5% over 95. Like the fans of Rabia Wadi' al-Sheikh or Ali Di are more here everywhere yeah, than the fans of Egbert uh, von Karayan or Maria Callas or Um Kalsum or voila. So unfortunately, this is it. Thank you. Merci. Thank you. We could squeeze in one more if anyone has questions. <laughs> None? I, I want to ask you actually something we didn't touch on. Sure. Something you do, I don't think it's just a hobby, it's a passion. Uh, painting. Yeah. So does that stem from just your own curiosity? You're trying it out and you're seeing where it goes because you've actually now managed to display your work. I've seen your work in exhibits. I'm like, that's Mateo. Because like, <laughs> I, I thought there was another Mateo Khudr who's painting, but it's you. So is that just, does that stem from creativity in general? Look, can you imagine that I started painting before singing? Yeah, I was six or seven, and uh, it was very early, and I buried it to let my voice shine. Because I, I remember, I recall, there was a teacher in um, art school who told me, Matteo, you have too many talents. If you want to do everything, you will end up doing nothing. I was traumatized. I was like, okay, I'm going to bury everything. I'd keep it on the DL, keep it on the down low, keep my painting side on the down low, shine as an opera singer, and uh, painting will... It's going to come one day. And if, effectivement, when, when COVID years happened, I was stuck at home. I lost all my contracts after The Voice. I had 17 contracts signed. I had, to, I had a tour scheduled. 
And I started the tour and I came back home to pack my bags and to go for for another city and I was stuck in Beirut. I couldn't do anything. So all my concerts were uh, were annulled and I had to stay home, but staying home without singing, I, I, was, I feed from the crowd. The crowd is my oxygen. I was doing some concerts on Instagram, but it was not the same thing. So I was dying, slowly dying. And I told myself, you know what? You have the material, you have the canvases, you have the chevalier, you have the atelier, start painting again. And I, I was thriving at home, creating, creating, creating. And here I am, having both careers. So Corona actually yeah. brought you back to that earlier yes. talent. Yes. But it's good to see your work now on display. Yeah, and so I'm very proud of that because I was very shy at first. I was keeping it on the DL for 15 years and coming back to showcase it again, it took me a lot of courage. On occasion, you share your work on social media. I encourage anyone here who's not following Matteo Follow him on Instagram. Oh, thank you. And you have to go down a bit to see his paintings, but they're there. Um, It's a very silly way to end it, but it's appropriate. When you're in the shower, what are you singing? Oh, my God. You're going to laugh. Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Crap. Um, (laughs) Lately, Dua Lipa. (laughs) Lipa? Yeah, yeah. I do a lot of things under the shower. So when you're, (laughs) let's say your go-to exercise for vocal training, what is that? I go from the lowest to lowest notes to the end. Is there is there a and go down and go Is there is there a song not a song, is there a musical that you turn to for that kind of range? No, no, I do it like that by, by ear. But by sometimes ear. you know, like putting some uh, very nice commercial music, it helps. It helps a lot. So then I want some reverb. I want your favorite commercial music that you go to for vocal training. <laughs> <laughs> And I can't wait to know what the commercial is. <laughs> I'm so predictable. Sure. <laughs> I think we're almost there. Yeah. Look at how efficient Test. you are. Yeah. Oh, I'm caught in a bad romance. Oh, 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 in a bad romance. <laughs> yeah, this is Gaga, Gaga, guys. <laughs> Thank you. That's staying in the episode. <laughs> Matteo, despite how painful things are in the region and despite how delicate things are in this country, it's an honor to get to know you better tonight. Habibi. Thank you. I love running into you on the streets. I know that will happen now. I hope it's going to be more often. It's the, it yeah. was the first time. It was the first time and we live next door to yeah. each other. So we have different probably hours. <laughs> but uh, it's really an honor to do this with you tonight. So thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank you, guys. Thank Round you of for applause coming. to Matteo. Thank you. Merci. Thank you.